Welcome to our Connect Sessions, episode 106. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. Joining us this week from Istanbul is Anthony Mori, an LA-based theorist, designer, educator, writer, and curator. Readers of Archonnect will likely recognize his name from his curatorial work with the exciting annual architecture show One Night Stand and his relatively new series on Archonnect, Crosstalk. We're here with Anthony Mori, editor and visionary behind our relatively new series on Archonnect called Crosstalk. And uh, also, Anthony's an educator and curator. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a complete pleasure to be here today, Paul. So you're, we're connecting with you. Um, you're all the way over in Istanbul, Turkey. Yes, I am. It's quite a long distance away. Uh, you're enjoying yourself over there? Is it purely, purely pleasure? Or are you getting some architecture satisfaction in your trip as well? Surprisingly, the other day we made a trek out to Ephesus and um, I had never really experienced that kind of level of access to ruins beyond the Roman level where it's usually guided and being able to just walk literally all over history seems satisfying on so many different levels. And it was a great experience. Wow. Awesome. I feel like it was just yesterday that uh, Ken was telling us about his trip to Turkey, but I guess that was a while ago. We've been doing this show for a while. So I met you when you were finishing up your studies at SciArc, and then you went out east for graduate school, right? Yeah. So when I first made my connect with Arcanet and you, Paul, I was coming out of, I had just graduated from SciArc and I started covering Arcadia Arcadia um, at USC. And so from then on, I, I ended up heading towards Harvard Graduate School of Design to pursue history and philosophy, just because coming from the West Coast and having a certain exposure to image making and production and technique, I was really interested in getting the other side of the coin. And it seemed like the GSD was the perfect fit for that. And so I went over there and was lucky enough to connect with Michael Hayes. And he was really my, um, my guiding light throughout the process there and um, was able to get exposed to various different projects at the GSD and wrapped that up this past year while finishing up a fellowship in Nebraska, the High Chair of Excellence. And throughout that time, worked on a couple of projects that I've also worked with Arcanet on, such as One Night Stand and now Crosstalk. Yeah, One Night Stand. Before we get into Crosstalk, maybe we can talk a little about One Night Stand. Readers of Arcanet are probably familiar with it, but for those people out there, it's a pretty great and unique event that that you guys have been doing annually here in LA. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was uh, pretty much around the same time that I reached out to Arcanet, was working with you guys. Um, the other co-founder and I, um, Ryan Tyler Martinez, it started off with just us two, were unemployed and bored in LA after finishing our SciArc education. And um, we started having lunch at a cafe and we just continuously talk about what we wanted to do and how we should do it and what venues there were for us to work on projects. And we just kind of decided, why don't we just make our own? So we put together the little money we had at the moment from everything we we're working on and just decided to figure out a new way of producing a project. And that's where One Night Stand came from, was just from cafe talks in downtown LA. And the premise was we would rent out motel rooms and give each motel room to one architect slash artist at the time and give them access to produce a show for one night. So they would install and check in and deinstall by checkout the next day. And um, it became this way of letting young academics uh, just have as much freedom of production as they used to have in education, but without the constraints that they had in the professional practice world and flushing out ideas that they um, they might feel 
constrained or embarrassed or worried to put out into the public sphere so quickly. And it, it, it kind of created that space. And plus, it was just a really fun event um, that people could come out, hang out for art and architecture or even just public at large would see it. And it kind of gave us a way to reach out to a different audience that I think would traditionally come to architecture shows. Yeah, I love the fact that it was hosted in a uh, in a motel, too. I, I don't know of any other shows, especially architecture shows that have been in a venue like that. So, yeah, for listeners out there that want to learn more about it, we'll have links to our previous reviews of, of the uh, past one night stands. Are, is that going to be continuing? Or this, uh, I believe this was the last year, right? This was the last year. As of right now, I think we, um, I think we came to terms with that. I think it was, that's also something else we've had a lot of conversations between Ryan and I. And later on in the project, Will Hugh, another member came in and was one of the other co-founders. And we all kind of talked about it, that it was a way for us at a specific moment in time and a specific point in our careers to, to test out ideas. And we think that over the course of its running, we've kind of gotten out of it what we wanted specifically. If there was another way of it to be pushed forward through different people or through a different, uh, format, I think we would be interested. But as, as as the format that it is today, it kind of ran its course. And the idea that it was three of them in total really put it to a point where we felt like it had done what it needed to do. And what did it need to do? And uh, wh- what did you get out of it? Like, what did you what did you take out of your experience running this show for three years? I would have to say from my perspective, at least, um, maybe each one of us would have different ones. But I think for me, it gave me a chance to really see the the architecture discipline in a, in a lighter light. It allowed me to accept the naiveness of working and the roughness of working. It also showed how much the general audience really wants to participate and really wants to see certain um, parts of architecture and just the humanities in general in downtown LA and in general places around the country and seeing how different schools, different people, we had a lot of people submit from London, even somebody else who works with you guys a lot, Christine Bjork was one of the first participants in, in One Night Stand. And now it's just great to see how this has been a way to pull people together. And I think for me, um, someone who has a really large interest in curation at the time and wanted to understand what it took to put together a show, it gave me enough of an exposure into that, into that realm to really kind of sink my teeth into something fun, completely irresponsible, completely unnecessary, but turned out to be completely the necessary and responsible thing to do for the discipline, at least for me to find my place in it. That's so great. Yeah, it's a great series. Um, I love that we covered it on Arconnect. Anthony, I just wanted to know, and they, if the answer to this question is just no, that had no impact at all, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I may be totally off on a wing here, but um, the fact that it happened in a hotel in Dingbat Hotels, do you feel like that was a specific LA aspect of it and that this could be held in other kinds of structures that might relate more to other cities or was the dingbat i mean was the hotel just the convenient form to rent several rooms <laughs> um yeah i think it was something that came up in the very beginning i think one of the initial motivators was what could we afford it was also a financial aspect and also la because we right. were here <laughs> because we were here we looked for really key things in the beginning we looked at we wanted to have motels with really beautiful signage signage was a key thing for us so we looked for hotels with art deco signage and we only found like four or five that were still in use and then we looked for buildings that had architectural interesting spaces just to find stuff that we could take advantage of and produce qualities and so i think there were some things that were based out of la and i think it fit perfectly into LA specifically with the the energy and the jive that's and the energy that's just constantly being pulled from LA um, with all the architecture schools USC UCLA SciArc Woodbury all these schools are kinds of constantly tossing students leadership and lectures all around and I think um, the motel for us just seemed like the perfect non-respectful thing to do it, it wasn't a museum we didn't want a gallery we felt like when you tell an architect they're going to install in a gallery they produce something that isn't necessarily truthful 
in the sense that it, it makes you think that you need to fit into a gallery sphere. You sense that you need to live up to something. And there's a white wall conversations. And there had, there had already been a lot of theory talk, I think, in those kind of atmospheres and what a museum or a gallery is. And so a motel room really came with very little architectural baggage tied to it. And it gave people the chance to just do things that we wouldn't really <laughs> expect. And I think we saw a lot of provocative projects out of that because people said, you know what, it's just up for one night. It's a motel room. No one's going to care. But at the same time, it ended up pulling audiences that we never could think of come to an architecture show. I think the first year we hit around 1,200 people and it was a perfect fit. The second year we hit 5,000 people and we destroyed the capacity of the hotel. And we had to find a new venue because we never thought that we'd get that many people coming to an architecture event. And so I think that kind of spelled success for us was saying, at least we're making an audience that's willing to come to a motel to see architecture. And if that's how hungry they are for it, it just shows how much more space we have to grow. You know, Anthony, hearing you talk about the project until Paul brought it up until you started talking about it, I totally, that project slipped my mind. But considering that project in conjunction with the uh, Crosstalk series, the the one thing that strikes me, and you kind of uh, talk about it in one of the uh, pieces, I don't remember which piece it was, the Crosstalk number two, you talk about agonism when somebody was being critical of the piece or has some criticism of it. And you talk about agonism and I didn't really, I've not heard that term before, but then I started reading about it. Is it important? I mean, it seems that in both cases that there wasn't a lot of time given to uh, assemble a project. So it allowed for the possibility of failure or the possibility of like talking out of your ass in a sense that maybe this doesn't work, maybe it does work, but I'm not going to worry about whether or not it does. I'm going to think about something very in a very short amount of time. I'm going to put it up, see what happens, and then work from there. It just I got the sense that the beauty in these ideas, especially in that I'm reading the, the series Crosstalk, is that there's almost implicit in the discussion or in the writing that I don't have the answers. I'm not d- desiring to have the answers. I'm looking for room to have a discussion. And, and, and when I looked up agonism, it seems like that's important to have in, a, in these kinds of projects is that room for growth can't happen in a completed idea. And it seems like these ideas are not complete and there's room for thinking, room for criticism, room for discussion. And that only makes the piece much more richer. Am I on base there or am I off? Um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say you summed up my personality pretty well, but I would have to say that, I mean, part of the, I think all of the people involved in One Night Stand and then now with Crosstalk, I think a key part of it, at least for me, is my background. I think it's impossible to escape our backgrounds. And so for me coming from West and East Coast and then originally from Miami, there was a sense that I I just never really knew what I was looking for. And I really never knew where I fit into these conversations. So a lot of these projects have been a way for me to kind of wedge myself in between two spheres and see what sticks to the wall. And um, I think um, the aspect of making space and for having some criticism for the project, I think for me, what matters is, yeah, I think they are short-term projects. And I think you said it perfectly, they are created in short spans, but that doesn't mean that they were conceived through through short terms. They were buildups of multiple, multiple occurrences, multiple conversations. And I think for crosstalk, I think, for example, is probably a key one for that for me is that it it really came from spending time on the West Coast, spending time on the East Coast and seeing these, this separation. And I've also tried to approach things through some level of agitation. I think I, I look back to Duchamp saying he tr- um, he always tries to contradict himself, no matter how convinced he is, you know, and I think there's a certain aspect in that for me that whether or not I, I feel comfortable in a situation, my first response is to try to 
destroy my own perspective because that's the only thing that allows me to get certain, produce my own ideas and have something at stake. And I think if I was looking for answers all the time, I would have nothing at stake. I'd, I would just be looking for constant security and answers have never really been that fulfilling for me. And I, I can't talk for the rest of the members from one night stand, but that's what led to Crosstalk was finding another avenue to discover more questions and just have space for them. And so when people have objections to them, sadly, it, if it's perfectly into the into the format of the project, it's, it would be so bad to produce something like crosstalk and not have somebody get super angry or super agitated. But I think that agitation only shows that we're we're just a little bit too safe right now. If a if a post on a public forum is capable of producing such such um such emotion <laughs> feedback, and I think a lot of architects want to be provocative and try to be provocative with their work, but aren't really comfortable with being provoked. And if you want to be provocative, you have to be okay with being provoked and you have to be okay with defending your position and having a stance for it. And whether or not the stance doesn't have to be final, but it needs to be something that you can defend and talk about and have a conversation about in a way that's positive. And I think agonism was something that came up with Nicholas as an initial topic when we started thinking about the first introduction and what keyword we could use to work with it. And we settled with that. And I think it it gave a really good, clear route to say that this project was really made to constantly agitate, just to not give people the sense of stability in their own, but that they were going to have to declare one. I love that that comment that, you know, in order to be provocative, you need to be able to be provoked. And I, I think it's so interesting that this series is online, which, I mean, I think the web is probably the most difficult medium to have kind of a higher level of high quality debate, you know, because people are so defensive and, and trollish in general online. Do you think that that is, I mean, what do you think about that, about the fact that, that crosstalk is an online format? Do you think it would be better to have these types of discussions in a format that is more, I guess, uh, representational in, in terms of participants than engaging with anonymous participants? It's weird. I think, Ken, if I just go back to your comment, I could probably tie it back into answering this one is um, while I was at the GSD, I founded a journal called Masks and I and I worked on a printed publication and the conversation of printed matter was, I think it's a soups, extremely contemporary one. We had people from the EAA, London, Abstract, Columbia, all talk about Avery review about the online version versus their printed version and what the medium is and what it's going through and how many questions there are. And so I think part of crosstalk was also just the, the putting your toes into the water water of what it means to be critical online. And I think one frustration for me is when you go through these critical texts and you write down and you sit down and write something and you you find your words in it and you find yourself through the writing and then it ends up on a bookshelf that never gets pulled off the shelf. And I think that's something we see constantly at different levels of education where all this knowledge is being stored in bookshelves that can't be accessed by anyone. And so if we don't just try to understand what the conversations can be like and how to start understanding them is to take, take the first step to let the trolls have their fun. Um, I think I'm totally okay with it. I think it's, it's comical and it also shows what works and what doesn't work. And maybe there's a, a technical way of understanding how to work with it or a non-technical, or maybe it's just a, the conversations that are being had. But the trolls are also the public. And so I, I think you can't, um, as much as you want to fight that, there has to be a certain level of acceptance that that's the level of language that's being had. And if you're trying to be critical, but that's the language that's being regurgitated back to you, how do you bridge that gap? And how do you start creating areas of commonality that allow you to have the conversations you want to have or allow the crosstalk to exist in a realm that maybe isn't yet there for it to be as productive as it should be. And you're also trying to find that medium at the same time. That's what I like about this particular series over the printed is that 
you have to take the time to write the piece. Then it's the production or the edit and putting together of the piece. Then it's the printing of the book. Then it's the disseminating of the material. So by the time it actually gets to the reader's hands, what is it, a year? I don't know. I've never produced a book. So I have no idea about a mass production, about when the, the ink hits the paper to when I get to read it. You could be onto a different topic and you might have just said, you know what? I don't have to answer those questions because I'm on to something new. What's great about this is that you write it, you might be mid-thought or somebody might be midstream in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense, and the immediacy is there that might inform the next decision. Or the, the, the comment, like you said, I think, I think that's interesting that you, were, you came on that one and you were actually starting to have this crosstalk where somebody was critical and then you were kind of like addressing the criticism. And I thought that's probably, that takes some, that's, I think you're right on some level, there's a different length of time it takes to kind of get people to kind of play your game, kind of play the gambit along with you, which is to have this kind of constructive dialogue, but it through without being a troll, but actually having a real discussion. That's what I like about these pieces. I like how you said like a real discussion. I think that's for, for me also, I think this came in early on with the project was the, the inverse of crosstalk was Instagram for us. I think it was the conversation of images and how quickly images get disseminated now and how quickly we have no problem looking at 50 images on Instagram and clicking yes or no and not feeling any emotional response like, oh, that's a pretty image. And so we either don't accept the critical conversations or we flip through images and just accept them because they're they're part of our world. And I think um, being able to use Arcanet, which is an extremely powerful public forum, I think, which was stated by the by Kyle, it was it's great to be able to have a forum that at least brings those conversations up to the surface, because I think it it needs to happen to be able to have constructive conversations in the future. I don't think Crosstalk is a project about today. I think it's a project about how we learn to talk to each other in the future and how we learn to get ideas out there. It's not through endless footnotes. It's not through endless grammatical supremacy or kind of superiority through love um, indexes. It's about legitimate conversations occurring side by side. Ridiculous bibliographies. <laughs> yeah. And, and those are useful. I, it's not that I think they're useless. It's, I think they're extremely useful. They're just, they shouldn't be the default. And I think when, when you accept these things to be defaults, when you accept anything to be a default is when you start have to becoming agitating because you have to make sure default is default. And why is it a default? Is it out of convenience or is it out of legitimate need? And when those kind of conversations take place, I think we get to get somewhere really interesting. I think it's interesting that, uh, that you brought up the image versus text issue, because that was something that Nicholas and I were discussing when we were kind of coming up with a way to brand this series in the covers. And we wanted to figure out a way that we could create kind of a shareable image out of text. Because, I mean, the the uh, unfortunate reality these days is sometimes in order to get somebody to read something, you need to give them something. I mean, you need to you need to have some bait. And these days, you know, it's it's uh, it's a it's a different type of of audience, I think, that publishers are dealing with today than they were maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So sorry, before you respond to that, Anthony, can I just ask, Paul, did you or Nicholas, were you the graphic designers of that? text branding with the little fighters? Because I love it so much. I think it's really good. Who would you give credit to for that? That was Nicholas. That was Nicholas. Yeah, he's done a lot of a lot of the really cool covers on the site lately. He's got, you know, he has he has uh, he's an artist as well as a uh, writer. All right. So, yeah. So, Anthony, you I assume you were happy with that uh, with that look as well. Oh, man, I was so ecstatic with it. I think one of the things that came off in the beginning was we had talked to Nicholas and I was I think the image and text conversation was something that's just always been super. Per it's great that it was kind of constant. I think that's why one, it works so well with 
Paul being accepting towards doing it and Nicholas being intrigued was was something I had been working on at the GSD. And when I came back to LA, I wanted a way to bring that work here. And my my work at the GSD was honestly based on image and text. That was the name of the work. And so when I came here and I talked to Nicholas and I had been working with him um, for another project, it just seemed to fit perfectly. And when he put that that GIF, that I can never say this correctly, GIF or GIF, but... um, and when he put that up there, I think I emailed him within like three seconds saying, I'm in completely in love with what you did. Um, I think it couldn't have been any better. The fact that each continuation of the responses is a static image from the from the short animation from before, I think works even better. It shows that the movement only occurs when each one of these are built up on top of each other. I think everything that really went into that to that small snippet really gives it a branding, but also gives it a chance to um, to keep moving even when it's standing still. So I was going to say, in apropos, the notion of text and image, you know, I think that on Instagram, yeah, Instagram's very curated. It's very still. It's, you know, Twitter, there's a lot of conversations happening, but um, they're disjointed and everything. I just want to say to people who enjoy both of those mediums and are maybe nervous about getting into something that feels like a heady, long, lot of talk, lot of text, a lot of words, the, the, each entry is quite short. I mean, they're fairly short reads, but they dig, they bite into some really interesting topics and bring up some really difficult questions. And I think like Ken and you both, Anthony, have said, it's not about finding an answer in the very brief essay. It's about getting some questions out there on the table. Yeah, I think maybe just to cement that, I guess, since should I just to expose the ideas of the project of the memoir, just to go back to what we had talked about before, Crosstalk started with Paul and Nicholas saying, okay, give it a shot. And it was reaching out to a selection of contributors, which I had known, and various levels of degrees, various levels of institutional standing uh, from students to faculty to current PhDs. And the kind of process to it, which I think works pretty decently, is that they're given the topic in an introduction text, really short text explaining the the premise of Crosstalk. They get that. They have about a week to two weeks just to respond because I know they get stressed out in the beginning of how do I have a short text? So then they send me back something within 500 to 750 words, at which point Nicholas gets them, Miley gets them, edits are done, they get sent back. And then everyone gets each other's pieces. I send everyone then one package with everyone's pieces. And then they all see what everyone else wrote. And then they're allowed one final minor edit round to in order to at least connect, disregard or position themselves in or against each one of the other participants in some way. And then that becomes the final round that gets published. So it's interesting to see how sometimes people want to and sometimes people don't want to position themselves. It's also interesting to see how how sometimes they radically shift. And there have been some that have changed dramatically in that time period, and there have been some that haven't. And I think that's become a really interesting, at least from the other side of the fence, um, seeing how those kind of conversations take place and then what finally hits the public sphere. So the theme of the first series was agonism. The theme of the second series, which just concluded over the weekend was pedagogy. Any ideas for a third installment theme? Yeah, I think the the next um, I think the next three in my mind are probably going to be image, text, object, and then history. Um, history is pending. That's why I say three. Um, history being quote unquote a possible theme. It just comes from major keywords that I just kind of see taking place. And at least just an introduction allows certain conversations and arenas to be made on the broader sense. I think that if it goes on longer and longer, the the points will be a little bit more specific. But I also want it to be tied to terminology that's extremely current. So kind of looking over ARCANET, looking over essays, pieces that are being written, words that are being used. That's what makes ARCANET and Crosstalk powerful is that a topic can be taken from yesterday and be put into a critical conversation two days from now, which is something that just doesn't traditionally happen. 
So there is a framework, but I, I would have to say it's it's allowing for extreme uh, changes to happen at any moment. When you uh, were, were mentioning that Nicholas and I were were cool with going with this, I have to say when uh, you you initially brought up the idea to Nicholas and Nicholas shared it with me and both of us right away were like, this is this is so great. I mean, this is really what I want to see more of on on online in general or just because I mean, the I, I guess the goal with crosstalk is kind of like, you know, it's it's a goal that we should have in general, you know, just to because especially right now with the political situation, people are becoming it's becoming more and more difficult to uh, uh, have disagreements with each other in a productive ways. But I mean, I think on web forums, web discussions, it's especially difficult. So we're, yeah, we've been, we've been all, all about the crosstalk series and we're, um, it's been great to see, you know, people becoming engaged in the comments. Hopefully we'll get more of that. It's funny. There was this one, I don't know, this came to my mind right now because you were saying back then was, I remember going to a Yale symposium last year. It was being conducted by, I, I think, um, Mark Foster Gage and Michael Speaks was there as a moderator and Hernan and Graham Harmon. And I remember seeing this conversation and I remember seeing the invitation to the, to the lecture series. And I, I remember thinking this is going to be an intense argumentative debate at this Yale symposium. And then I remember going there and, and seeing Hernan at one moment fantastically and perfectly say a comment that you could just tell was meant to agitate. It was like the most agitatedly loaded comment. And somebody just said, I agree with you. And he just looked at him and says, then that worries me. And <laughs> it just it just hit me that, yeah, like we're at a point where we're we're back to seven year olds playing basketball in summer league who everyone gets a trophy for participation. And no one's everyone's scared to give a winner trophy or give a loser trophy. Not that there should be winners and losers in conversations, but we're all scared to have to make anyone feel like it wasn't productive, that it's okay to just participate. And I don't think it's okay to just participate. I think for me, Crosstalk is to say that there is something at stake at every comment and it's up to you to stand by it and go against it or support it. But just to just just participation sometimes isn't good enough. You have to be active and active means going beyond just saying that you're there. It's about speaking up and saying something beyond that. It also, as you say, it's okay to be to have your mind changed through some of this. It's okay to put out an idea and stand by it, but also say, I am willing to be convinced otherwise, depending on your argument, right? Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think from the last one from Pedagogy, it's not the kind of piece when I was writing it, it was fearful because I'm like, I'm going a little bit too far on this piece. And I knew that. And I think I was well aware, but I also realized that sometimes your role changes and sometimes your role is to go a little bit too far to provoke, like I said before, and you have to be okay with that. And I think you, um, it's not that you have to, I think you need to feel 100% certain of your project. And sometimes your project deems that you take on a role that you're not 100% comfortable with, but you understand that some things should be done in order to make sure that the project is successful. And for me, I knew that if I would have not gone, for me, I felt at least at the time I could be wrong. I It'd be great if I was, it'd be great to see a different side. For me, I felt at the moment that it, I should be a little bit harsher than I normally would have been just for the sake of producing a powerful topic that was only two series in. It was the second introduction and I felt like it just needed to, to live up to the first. And so that was part of the goal. And um, if the ones moving forward become supportive or, or negative, I think that's just a different side of the fence that'll be taken up on each one. It doesn't mean that it's a do or die all. It just means that some conversations just need some space, like you guys said, to exist. And sometimes the job is to, is to clear out some areas. It seems like when... The reason for the the reticence to share ideas like this in a in a public space or in a in a way that gets an immediate reaction is, and I know it comes from me, um, and it's me speaking, um, is the sense of I don't trust if I don't trust the other occupants in the room, 
I'm less likely to share a part of myself that might be open to criticism. And that's what made studio environment so good is that you were in that situation for 15 weeks at a time with generally the same people. So you, you know, five years of, of studio, you trusted those people. You know, you can go out on a limb because you knew that the people that you, that cared about you and you cared about were going to be, that you trusted them and you, that you were going to try ideas because you knew that you were going to get a good criticism. It could be cutting, but you know, it was going to come from an honest place. And it's hard to, hard to put yourself out there when you don't know on the other side of that screen, who that person is. And you trying to let yourself have that moment where you can kind of like not be defended and um, be willing to face an attack and not feel like that person has your best intentions in mind and hoping that you're going to grow and, and create more. So I, I, I sense that's probably what a lot of it is. And there's one thing I don't do on Arconnect, and I, I don't share any of my work because I don't trust 90% of the people on Arconnect because I just you know what? They're faceless people to me. And I share it with the people who I'm close to on our connect and, and they've been supportive and I'll, I'll take that over, you know, getting beat up by, you know, someone who's just plugging away in their pajamas and not doing, giving a whole lot of fuck about what I do in my life. So, so that's, I, I know that that personally. I think that's also something that came from this too, was you're putting out a critical conversation. I think everyone that's been part of it. And I, I hope that's super clear from the project too, is that it really does have positive intentions behind it on every level it really is meant to kind of start allowing people to get comfortable in that sphere to be to be critical and to be exposed as you guys said the main part of it from the beginning was to start having these conversations and i think you aced it by saying people won't feel comfortable and i think that's why the first initial batches of crosstalk were made around people that knew each other and had a certain sense of buy-in into understanding that their project is geared towards helping the conversations that exist in schools and public happen in a comfortable environment without without egos without fear without scare tactics of not being able to talk and with understanding that trolls are going to happen. I think it's a medium problem, not necessarily a society problem. I think it's more about the medium and how we're using it, but it's also, we won't know how to work with it unless we actually work with it. And so I think crosstalk is, that's the, that's one side of it separate from the disciplinary side is understanding how to ease people into these, into these places of extreme discomfort and extreme vulnerability. Because if we don't get that, we won't be able to push forward through the project that we're working on, which is the discipline at large. That's great. You know, I totally forgot you had said you, everybody traded. So that's, that's, yeah, that studio kind of, you know, that kind of hybridization of the studio environment. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I would be much more at ease in an environment like that and putting work out there once I knew that a bunch of people that I would, you know, had connections to were looking at it. And I mean, like some people that have connections to read it and don't like me anymore. So that's fine too. Um, I think it's just part. Of, I think it's. I think it's just part of the game. But I think. I think that's extremely for me. At least that's an extremely productive avenue. Is at least now I have something to talk about and a way to bridge conversations. I think now there's finally two sides to a conversation. And for God's sakes, do I miss that? Do I miss that time when I could have an argument and work off of it and find a way to challenge myself and answer somebody else's questions that don't fit into my perfect sphere of thinking and then allows me to expand my sphere of thinking. I mean, that's what knowledge is about is expansion. And so if people are unhappy with it, that's fantastic. That just gives me more avenues of attempting to understand each other that we just didn't have before because we never we never bothered to ask. Are you a devil's advocate kind of guy? And uh, like in, in real life, do you like having these types of debates with people? 
I am an absolute devil's yeah. advocate. I would I would say I and even more I I enjoy chaos. I think that makes it through my design work and I that makes it through any project I'm working on. Anyone that I've worked with on projects will tell you the same. Uh, the more chaotic the initial steps are to me, the more interesting because it, it then every project allows me to find myself. If I if I attempt to gear it too harshly, I really don't know how to do that. I I fail from step one. And so it's a way for me to get comfortable in, in a situation that I'm just not ready to know. I, like I said, it's, it's about finding questions, not answers. And so for me, being devil's advocate in any conversation allows me to just understand more of the arena than just my own. I, at least I attempt to, whether, it's, whether it's, it's an extremely frivolous exercise or not, it gives me space to attempt it. So what else keeps you busy? Tell us what you do, uh, what you're doing right now outside of Crosstalk. Um, well, I'm the assistant director at the A plus D Museum under uh, Dora Epstein-Jones. Um, started that in, in the summer and um, I'll be teaching at USC in the fall. And so that pretty much takes up my time. And then with Why Not Workshop, working on competitions and projects kind of keep me, keep me sane whatnots in the process. What are you, are you teaching studio at USC? Yeah, teaching studio. It's weirdly enough, I think, Part of what you guys just talked about, kind of creating chaos, that's also kind of how I consider finding myself in the discipline career-wise is that I've had a hard time understanding my route in one single one single avenue. And so finding ways to plug into different paths has really allowed me to be the most productive version of myself. And so the idea that an, an architect has to just be a designer or an architect just has to be a writer. I've had various faculties in the past that have told me, oh, you, a theorist or a designer, you have to choose. And I never understood that. And luckily enough, I've had some other um, like pedagogues that have crossed my route that have allowed me to understand that you can kind of do both. And it's always good to try out both these areas at the same time. And um, I think that's what that's where I found myself today was Dora was grateful enough to take me on with her. And it's been an incredible project and it's helped me understand the curation side, which I feel a lot of architects have done in history. And um, the writing side through masks with Clemens Finkelstein, another partner that I work on with the journal. And then teaching has just been amazing to me. That's where I really get to understand uh, minds and ideas better than anything else because it keeps me kind of working in that process. And so studio, working with image and text in studio has just always been the goal of mine. From a, uh, just, I'm, I'm curious what do you think of the current state of architectural education? I mean, this is something that's come up with a lot of people that we've talked to on the podcast. I mean, is, is there is there a certain agenda that you have as a as an academic, as a teacher? Um, yeah, separate from the intense criticism on uh, crosstalk, I would say that on a personal level, I think I'm I'm really intrigued by the by the separation of of the realms of history and of theory and designers. Not just because it's not because I think it's extremely pertinent, but just because how it's been assimilated into into pedagogy, where we have theorists and historians on one side and image makers on the other. And I think that for me is where the state is right now. Is we have a state of image makers and and text makers, and I think it, they they coincide because they're both making, and they're both using different mediums, and they're both being imaginative in the same fashion, and some more than others in different areas. But I'm really intrigued on how pedagogy is going to take that challenge on moving forward um, with new deans that are kind. I think we're in the era of deans rapidly changing. I mean, we have a huge shift in pretty much every area and every coast and every school with deans. And so I, th I think it's going to be a couple of years before we understand where all these things line up and where they fall into place. And I think that'll be a point of a critical historical viewpoint onto where pedagogy went to. So Anthony, two questions for you. What are you listening to and what are you reading lately? Um, <laughs> reading would be the divine comedy. I don't know why that fits so well, but it just does right now in my life. Just some light reading. Yeah. Surprisingly, that's, well, um, yeah, that, that's exactly where I'm at right now. The divine comedy. 
And um, listening to it would probably be some of my Cuban music. I am Cuban background, so I kind of always, whenever I want to get into the mood of being fun and playful in my work, which is how I try to approach it, I kind of go back to my roots and listen to some Cuban-style music and some classical music at the same time to mix it. That's great. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for taking some time out of your vacation to talk with us. Thank you, Paul. I highly encourage anyone out there who hasn't yet read the crosstalk series to jump in read it and participate in the in the discussions that's that's the whole point we want to engage more critical debate among the community and i know there's a lot of smart people out there that have a lot of interesting things to contribute so get involved thanks to anthony for joining us this week if you have any questions comments or suggestions you can reach us on twitter at our twitter account arc sessions or with hashtag Arconnect sessions. And you can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks and talk to you next time.